Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Back everybody, episode forty-eight, part two of Maker. Like the first part, we have Nick Kunkel from the, the lead of backend services. I am Dr. Corey Petty, and my co-host Colin Couchet, aka Craig Wright, or the opposite. I don't know how you want to say that. No, no, I'm Roger Vere now. Okay, sweet. Yeah, um, I'm just all the people. Just, all the just people. put me on all the white papers. Put me on all the the scams. Put me on everything. As I'm gonna be on. when we get I'm sued. Be, you take I'm the block. Pie next, and then yeah, just this keeps the ball rolling, man. I'm just gonna be whoever the hell I want to be. So uh, if you're listening to this and you did not listen to the last episode, um, stop. <clears throat> Go back and listen to that episode. Even if you think you know how Maker works quite well, I'd still like to. I feel like you should probably listen to it to see if. Uh, we tell you anything you thought you knew but didn't know or we got something wrong. I assume we didn't because Nick's with us. He would have told us. Uh, but this episode, or last episode, was basically giving you a quality overview of, I'd say, the maker die ecosystem, um, how it works, what the, how the value flows, kind of the ins and outs, uh, and, some, and some, I guess, maybe frequently asked questions that a lot of people may have around the system. This episode, we're going to try and dive into the engineering side of it as to um, how it works technically. Uh, we have quite a few questions here, and we're just going to see how the conversation goes. So welcome back, Nick. Appreciate you doing this. Um, yeah, let's, let's, let's start. I think, I don't know, where do you want to start? Maybe Oracles? Oh, yeah. Nick, what's a smart contract? Okay, here we go. <laughs> I'm with you, dude. <laughs> Our audience knows that already. So yeah, oracles, what are they? What are you guys doing with them? How do they work? Um, you, you asked the right guy. So uh, me and uh, Mariano Conti, um, also a maker, uh, we're, we're the oracles guys. Um, so uh, our oracles are actually um, the mo like used by everyone in the space. I, I, don't, I think this is like a little known like fact. I actually so, use it. So I, I, I've made a donation app that uh, does that kind of automatically converts how much people have donated to our podcast and the Bitcoin Network podcast. And in order to, to find the price of uh, ETH US dollars, I use I, I make use of the Oracle. Yeah, I, I mean, that's really common. So like all of DeFi is pretty much using it right now, like Set, Compound, DYDX, Dharma, Gnosis, Augur, uh, all, all of these guys. Um, how does it work? Why can we trust it? Um, so it's essentially it's federated trust. So we, we talked in the last episode how MKR holders make all of the decisions uh, while they also decide who they want to be uh, an oracle. So who is allowed to be pushing uh, prices. So right now we have 15 uh, oracles that are all kind of pushing prices for, for Ethereum. And uh, what the smart contract effectively does is it takes the median of those 15 prices, and that's the price that is uh, that's used by the system. Um, so 
funnily enough, um, so I've been what I've been working on the past year actually is our uh, kind of next gen Oracle uh, architecture um, that we're going to be releasing alongside multi collateral die. I think it has I think it has a lot of advantages to to the current model. So in the current model, uh, everyone who is running an Oracle client, so all of those fifteen uh, people or organizations, um, they have a smart contract that's that's owned by them uh, that's kind of like a cash so it's like where they kind of push their prices to and then they kind of poke our medianizer smart contract which you know reads from all of them and takes the median um, that's kind of uh, that's kind of an inefficient model because it means if you have n oracles you know if you're doing n price updates n transactions um, and so when you think about multi-collateral die and you think, well, you know, we're going to have, you know, potentially hundreds, if not thousands of, uh, of assets, um, instead of just one with, with ETH, like we, like we have right now, um, we needed to come up with something that's much, much more scalable. Um, so effectively what we did is anything that you could put off chain in some kind of verifiable manner, we did. So there's very, very little left to do on chain. So, so what we do right, so what we're doing in the next gen is that all of these oracles, they're now not pushing their prices on chain anymore. They're not pushing a transaction. Instead, what they do is they sign a message. And this message is, uh, it has the asset pair name, it has the price and it has a timestamp. And they sign this message with their Ethereum private key. Um, and so now you've basically created this, this signature, right? So you have the price, you have the timestamp, and you have the signature that verifies that, you know, this came from, from a valid Oracle. And you put all of these uh, Oracles in this peer-to-peer -peer gossip network. Um, so the particular one we use is called Scuttlebot, um, but it's, uh, it, it functions very similar to, to other gossip networks. And you know, for, for your users, maybe who aren't familiar with what that is, um, you can kind of think of it like Twitter. So if I'm following Corey and Corey is following Colin and Colin uh, kind of uh, posts something, um, since Corey is following Colin, he's, and he sees that and he's gonna think of it like retweeting it. Now Corey has posted Colin's message. And now, since I'm connected to Corey, I see the message that Corey posted from Colin. And so you can see how this kind of propagates through the network very, very quickly through these kind of peer-to-peer -peer, um, connections. And so effectively what you have now is you have this peer-to-peer -peer network of all of these um, gossip price messages, and you can have these third-party entities come in. And so in our in the maker ecosystem, we have this concept called a keeper. And what a keeper is, is it's really just any, um, it's like a bot that you run and it makes you money, right? It, it does some useful service for the system and it earns some type of return. And so what happens here is that, um, so for example, Corey, you could be running a, a, a keeper and effectively, you would become a member of this peer-to-peer -peer gossip network, and you would see all of these price messages, and you would collect a bunch of them and put them into one single transaction that you then push on chain. 
and you get recompensated, right? Your gas costs plus like a little bit extra fee. And so that's how you incentivize these third parties to, to push these transactions. And so what you'll find now is that instead of having N oracles and N transactions, you can have N oracles, one transaction. And that scales much, much, much better. So, and what we've managed to do there is actually reduce our costs um, by about 98%. What are you going to do about maybe like spam protection and griefing this type of network? Because uh, say multiple people can be so the keeper I imagine would aggregate and take the media of all of the different oracles that he's receiving based on some given asset, and then publish the median of whatever he has for a given asset based on all the oracles of that work. Uh, I imagine that gets validated only by the signature of. Um, appropriate people who can be oracles right because they they're just they're 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 basically sending a message and passing it on is there a way to like perform eclipse attacks on this type of network uh to try and corral the corral a given price based on collusion is there a way to maybe spay on the network so you can kind of ddos it in some way shape or form because like i work for i work for status we're so definitely worried yeah. about these types of things quite a bit and so uh when, when you when you change from a federated network where you have like a lot of redundancy, which is the cost of efficiency and try and turn everything off. Uh, by lowering those costs, you maybe potentially introduce attack vectors so someone can, can, can sway things. Have you like, have you thought about these things? And if so, what have you thought about? Yeah. I mean, of course, those are all very valid points and, uh, we can, we can definitely get into that if, if you want to do that. Um, so the, Effectively, what, what the game theory comes down to is, um, can you get 51% of the oracles, right, to, uh, to collude, right? Um, so, so it's very similar kind of in terms of like, you know, blockchain hash power, right? Mm -hmm. Can you get 51% of the hash power? Can you get 51% of the oracles uh, to, to collude? Um, and um, so in, in terms of spam, for example, um, there are kind of built in kind of re regulatory kind of behaviors that each of the oracles is running. So if one oracle is behaving kind of maliciously or trying to spam it or DDoS it, like it can just cut it out. Um, for example, it can put it on like a 30 minute timeout, you know, and like, you know, if after 30 minutes it's, uh, it, it says, hey, I'll be your friend again. And it's still, you know, spamming it like, nope, you go right back to the timeout corner. Um, you also have well, this, this I'm still kind of working on, but I want to kind of make it into a staking model, right? Where effectively oracles put up stake um, and then have some kind of challenge response mechanism. So if I'm an oracle and Corey is an oracle and uh, Corey, you're putting out some, what I think are malicious prices, I can send you a challenge uh, message. Um, and you will recognize that challenge message and you can either ignore it, in which case, you know, you're stake will get slashed after some amount of time um, or you can respond to it and you can respond to it and say oh well i actually you know i checked my sources my price sources again and i you know i stand by this message that i that i put out and now the the challenger basically has to um uh put up their stake right so now it's a both the both of you have have committed Versus if the you get challenged and Corey, you, you go back and like, oh, you know, maybe the price source I was using, the API screwed up and it gave me a bad price. Actually, what I meant to say is this is the right price, right? Then the, the challenge has been responded to and, and everything is fine. Um, 
Now there, there is, you can kind of put reputation at play here too, right? Yeah, that's what I was so, thinking here. Especially if you have, I, I, I guess, a contingent upon this, and this is, this is the difficulty of reputation systems. Is it, is it a, an anonymous Oracle system or is it a federated Oracle system where you actually have like a set number of people who are capable of being Oracles and then they do the network? And that makes it a lot easier in terms of doing reputation. So it's actually both. Okay. So we, we kind of differentiate this by, by two terms. We call them dark oracles and we call them light oracles. Um, dark oracles uh, are individuals and it's imperative that they remain anonymous, right? Because if you're an individual, you can be targeted, you can be blackmailed, you can be coerced. Um, it, it's just much better if, if you're anonymous. Um, and, and also that means that the oracles, it's much more difficult to, for them to coordinate and collude among each other. Um, for light oracles, these are public facing oracles. Um, and these are not usually individuals they are usually organizations like institutions. Uh, so, um, for example, you could have, um, Compound be running an Oracle. You could have 0x run an Oracle. You could have, say, a Coinbase run an Oracle, right? And and these these institutions, right? Uh, they 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 have a lot of users, right? They have a lot of credibility. Um, if they were to act maliciously, you know, there is a legal entity that you can sue, right? Um, there. There, the incentive, the game theory dynamics like play out that they can actually be be public facing, right? It's actually better for them to be public facing because of this reputation that they have at stake. Um, and so, right, another thing you can kind of play around with is, is remember we talked about like a fifty-one percent attack, you know, being the uh, the thing that breaks the camel's back. Well, I mean, if you can start weighting uh, these things too, right? You can say, I want to weight light oracles more than dark oracles by mm -hmm. some weighting, right? Or you can break it down to the individual. You can say, this oracle has been, you know, around for four years and has always been, you know, 99.999% uptime and the like, you know, I want to trust this by a little more than the oracle that just got added six months ago that, you know, seems to be running well, but, you know, who knows? And so, so, so maybe we, we can move on to, to something else. I don't, I don't want to take up the whole time talking about oracles. Um, well, okay. Uh, so... Oracles are pretty much like, so what are the categories of, of use cases for the oracles right now? Like in your system, literally just, you have price identifiers, you have uh, auctions, I guess would all be oracleized. Like you wouldn't want to run that directly on chain, would you? Like I think meant, like last episode you mentioned that they're on chain, but like, is there a possibility for having some truth mechanisms that exist for some of these on-chain calculations, which might save some transaction fees that um, in the future you might want to develop or? So, so the, the, everything is on-chain by design, and that's to make it decentralized to the point where even if Maker as an organization were to disappear, uh, the system would completely work the same way that it works right now. So that when we're designing something, that's, that's the most important piece. The second most important piece then is, okay, the, the gas optimization. How do you structure this, right? So the, uh, the amount of value leached by by fees right is minimized um what we use the oracles for the only thing we use it for is to know when a loan can be liquidated that, that is that is the only piece uh okay okay 
And, and there's really no cheap way of doing that on chain, I would take it, um, because first off, you're trying to go with actual timeframes, like, and you can't guarantee that, or like, what's what's the reasoning behind needing that off chain? Um, the having the Oracle stuff uh, work off chain right now. Yeah, the liquidation side of things. It's outside information. That's the basic idea. It's like it's as any Oracle requires outside information, and it, because you're pegging to a dollar, um, that's. Whatever you end up pegging to, you're going to need some type of uh, uh, reporting of that of that thing, and that can't be done without. Okay, so that's part of the liquidation thing. I get it. Okay, so when I was thinking liquidation, I was thinking the actual act of of like calling liquidation on on these things is like, but you can just submit the the truth value to the blockchain, and then that has an effect on the entire smart contract mm -hmm. ecosystem. That yeah. that's what I was kind of like thinking is you actually individually would call liquidation, but you're not doing that. It's just submitting the value. We, we don't call the liquidation, right? We just supply the price value. So when someone else, like a third party, remember we were talking about this keeper, this like self-interested third party actor. Um, they're the ones that are looking for which loans can be liquidated. They right. like, oh, right. the price finally dropped low enough to liquidate it. Now they push a transaction saying, I want to liquidate that one. Gotcha. And for me, that was kind of like the, oh, so wait a minute. They want to, they want to liquidate that one. I gotcha. Okay. Um, and that communication is, wait a minute. So actually now I'm confused. So they say they want to liquidate that one. The, 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 the maker holders, is that correct? Or is, is that not, not the maker holders, anyone. So the keeper is just a bot that anyone can run. You can run, uh -huh. run it, Corey can run it. Um, and the reason why someone would run a liquidation keeper is uh -huh. what call it, is because, you know, you get to be the first person to, you, you get to guarantee that you are the one that buys that collateral, right? So I want to liquidate that loan because the price of ETH has fallen far enough that it's under collateralized now. And I want to buy that ETH at you know a three percent discount. That is that is, and you can profit off of that three percent discount by selling that ETH on Uniswap, by selling that ETH on Kyber or you know whatever uh, decentralized exchange you want. So you've basically tried to find a way to get just anyone to systematically watch for the types of things that need to be called on chain, and you pay them out by giving them a premium on buying it. You you leave people profit opportunities to make them do things that are useful for the system. Yeah. Gotcha. So, uh, okay. So the, the main component, I guess, of Maker is the, the smart contract system that is in chain. And then the Oracle system, what else are we missing? Um, is there anything aside from that that we should be talking about? I... <laughs> I mean, I know that sense reduction, reduction, smart contract not, system. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, that's, but that those are two major components. Like literally that's the kind of the point of what I'm trying to make here is that from an architectural standpoint to develop a large scale financial transaction system, if we get the tooling down and we get the processes down and we get the best practices down, building something like this is a lot simpler than building visa. Right. Yeah. And, and it's a lot simpler than building a bank infrastructure. And so I didn't mean to say that as in like you didn't put in amazing work, although it could sound like that. What I was actually saying is this is what we have and this is all it takes to develop something. And the only reason that we can do this is because of this concept of trust, this decentralized trust mechanism.
which is the blockchain, which is the foundation for the entire you know thing that you're building. So I just I just wanted to point that out. I thought that was interesting that you you have this Oracle system, which is actually kind of um, you know an ecosystem of, of federated truth, and then you have the blockchain, which is the absolute truth, and this this automated logic, which obeys a predefined set of rules and people can interact with, and, and yada yada yada. But the problem that people keep running into, and this is Corey's area of expertise, and I'm sure he's going to have a ton of questions in this area, is the matter of security. Mm-hmm. So as far as a smart contract security goes, how did you verify that these things operate as uh, as expected uh, in as many circumstances as you can predict? Okay. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, security is really the, the most important thing. Um, Right, we have about two percent of the entire Ethereum supply locked up in our smart contracts right now. It's just above two million Ether, uh, which is uh, you can think of that as like a pretty significant systemic risk, right? So, uh, how how do we protect that? Um, so we have been working really closely with like most of the top audit firms in the space. So. Uh, Trail of Bits is someone that we work extremely closely with, um, and they're not just a you know one of the top or if not the top crypto uh, uh, cybersecurity firm. They're actually like one of the top cybersecurity firms, period, uh, in the world. Um, we've also like I think in total we've had like five or six audits. So the the White Hat Hacker Group, uh, those uh, glorious uh, anonymous individuals. Uh, they've audited um, the system as well. Um, but I, personally, I don't think that's enough. And so what we've done with multi-collateral die is we've taken the next step and we've done something that no one's done before. Uh, and so we've actually formally verified all of the multi-collateral die contracts, every single piece. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure your users are, you know, super knowledgeable and know what that means, but for the couple who don't, what formal, what formal verification means is that you can mathematically prove, you can like basically algebraically prove that the system can never do this. It can never do that. You know, given this, this can never happen. So, for example, you could say the system, you know, should never be able to print more die than the sum of the debt ceilings of, um, of all the collateral types. You know, the, the user should never be able to mint more die than their collateral is worth. Um, the user, no one should ever be able to withdraw die except out of this one function where when you're paying back your loan, you get to unlock your die. Um, you should never be able to withdraw more, you know, ETH than you put in. It's literally just say by you start very, very simple and build like these little primitive truths. And then you can start using them like Lego blocks and stacking these truths on top of each other to prove very, very kind of complex uh, relationships. Now, so one, awesome. I'm happy that that's the role that you went. I have some questions on how, how you like what what software used to do that and who did it. And uh, which, you made a very significant point about that is that, particularly in Ethereum, uh, you can only form, formally verify the truths that you put into the system and check. Uh, we're never going to get a system that's basically like, 
all possible scenarios are, are, are set within the context of the EVM, right? And so uh, the quality of reformification is basically uh, at the, the limit of the quality of the rules you put in to check in a lot of ways. Who, who, who did that? Like, what did you use? Like KVM? Did you use Manticore? What system did you use to do this formal verification? So we actually use both of those. Um, so uh, KVM is uh, basically we use the K framework yep. um, to, to kind of write our, our proofs. Um, and this is actually some of the same kind of, uh, we use a lot of the same tooling that Trail of Bits uses internally. So you mentioned Manticore, right? Uh, Manticore being one of them as well, kind of to do like fuzzing and, and stuff. Um, so, you know, we've had, I think at this point, we've had like two or three rounds of, uh, of audits with Trail of Bits. And the last one, I hope I'm allowed to say this publicly, but the last one came back and, you know, these things are usually like 20 pages thick, right? And they're like, you know, they list like, oh, here are the high severity issues, the medium severity issues, near the low severity. Yeah. And by this point, we'd already formally verified them and they just came back like, look, like, um, we're really struggling to write anything here. The, the report was like three pages long. That's, 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 it's almost like scary to get something back like that, to be honest, because it's just like, okay, maybe it's so complicated that even the auditors are having trouble with it. But like, it's definitely one of those situations where like, good job on the engineering, the spec was good. We're having trouble finding issues to discuss with you because it was done properly, um, especially when you do it multiple rounds. If, if you want to have a comparison for what one of these reports looks like when it's not good, um, go to the Trail of Bits GitHub, and you can, I, I hate to be a mean person and call them out, but look at the uh, audit they did for Basis, you know, previously called Basecoin. Yeah, they also they, have a repo called Not-So-Smart-Contracts within, within their GitHub that is a, a quality amount of, like, good things that will come out in the report. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's really awesome. And I guess a part, the next situation of that is, like, you've audited... Um, all the all the things that you're going to be doing for multi-collateral die and the things you're rolling out. The next question, like the next part of that is, one, how are you going to monitor these things so that um, they're operating the way they should once they're deployed? And two, say something changes in the upgrade path of Ethereum, what is the upgrade plan for these contracts? Is that, have, you, have, you, have you thought about those? So the M MKR governance has the ability uh, to um, basically re redeploy the system. Right, mm -hmm. uh, they can. Right, the the system has ownership over the Dai token and the MKR token. Right, so they can mint and, and destroy them. Um, and if you know MKR holders want to uh, upgrade the system, right, they can do a governance vote. And then there's a basically they they give the new system gets deployed and they give ownership of those tokens right to that new system. Right, they give ownership of the governance mod. They make the governance module control that, that new system. So there's a very clear uh, path here for, for upgradability. So say, you know, uh, ETH 2.0 is, uh, is starting to, uh, to be built out, right? They, can, they could have a new system or they could have a system in parallel. Um, an interesting point here is actually um, when multi-collateral die comes out, the current die, which we kind of have rechristened single collateral die, uh, that system will run in parallel uh, for about four to six months, um, those two, um, just to give people time to migrate over and transition over in their own time when they feel comfortable. Uh, 
you know, when they want to, uh, when they think market conditions are favorable for them to pay, pay back and close their positions, uh, we definitely don't want to be uh, the arbiters of saying like, hey, you know, forced migration now, that's, that's not how this thing works, right? We, we deploy it and we give the community the option of using the new system and we give them ample avenues to transition over. So if you want a CD, if you have a CDP open right now and you want to transition that CDP to multi-collateral DAI, uh, we'll have a mechanism to do that. If you have single collateral DAI and you want to upgrade it to multi-collateral DAI, we'll have avenues of doing that. Um, so, um, you know, we, for example, we talked about the oracles earlier you know, all of DeFi is using Maker's Oracles right now as a as the price source for ETHUSD. Um, you know, we don't want to screw those guys over. You know, we, you know, they have to plan from an operations point of view how they're going to uh, to migrate to to the new oracles, and and they need time to do that, and we understand that, right? Like we're we're not trying to hurt anyone here. So we kind of we understand that you know all of these systems are are interlinked, which is great. But the weakness of composability is right that there is a, there are centralized points of failure, and you need to behave responsibly when you are at that base layer infrastructure and providing it for the entire ecosystem. Yeah, man, that's a lot. Uh... <clears throat> so yeah, I mean, like I um, I'm looking through your docs as you're talking, by the way. Um, I, uh, some of the stuff I, I got, uh, I'm actually looking for your smart contracts so I could look over them and see what design principles you, you know, like how you were actually building them and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I want to see this, you know, formal verification methodology that you were talking about. You have a very large repo though. So I've also, I'm going through a lot of, a lot of stuff. It's not going to work right now. The, the MCV code is in, uh, is in DSS. D so maker. Oh, okay. DSS. DAI stability system, that's the multi-collateral die code. Okay. And you'll find that the contracts are not that big. Like we've, we've made a lot of effort to really pare them down and make things as simple as, as they possibly can be. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and that is, that is good for a multitude of reasons. It also means that people could just throw up their own version of this and just play with your model and have compatible versions of maker just running out there if they really wanted to. Although I, wouldn't see a huge need for that if this is working. Um, okay, so I, the real the question I was about to ask, and then before I, I realized, is that uh, I'm curious about uh, uh, die.js and how you how you foresee people building decentralized applications on top of this, um, and uh, you know some of the some of the design principles on that. I understand that you are the back end guy, but I'm pretty sure that to test some of that, you have to also do some front end work too. Um, and so I'm kind of curious, you know, what is what is your vision? What is the vision with DiJS? And are you guys expecting uh, to maintain the point of entry for people interacting with your stuff, or do you see people building alternatives to this? Um, so, so both, right? So, you know, we we want to have kind of a vibrant ecosystem built up around Maker and around Dai, and. <laughs> That kind of starts with we're knowing where we want to be positioned and leaving everything else to kind of everyone else. So we want to be on the base layer, right, where we just generate die and get die in circulation to make die useful. Um, we don't want to like you know soak up all of the um, like the opportunities that you can build on top of die because it's much much 
stronger um, when, when it's a platform, when it's a vibrant ecosystem. So we want to leave those uh, little pockets of value there for, for people to do. So what, what we found already is that there's a pretty big ecosystem building uh, on top of Maker. And, and most of them are using die.js uh, that, that you mentioned earlier. So for example, there has been all kinds of like alternative front ends that people have uh, that people have deployed. So there's uh, there's Instadap, there's um, there's SendWire or not not SendWire. SendWire, uh, I think it's it's SableWire, right? SableWire, yeah, it looks awesome actually from a conceptual standpoint. I don't know if it's like functional yet or working, but like, yeah, yeah, it's reversible payments. Yeah. You, you basically built a system which enables one of the things that kind of bothers a lot of people about this crypto stuff is that there's no way to actually like reverse a payment that went wrong, um, which, you know, some people see as advantage, but in certain situations it might not be. And one of the coolest things I've seen actually is something called MakerScan. It's Maker EtherScan, but, oh. but for all things Maker. Um, another really cool one is Maker.tools, so MKR.tools, and you can literally see like, um, you can look up any CDP, you can see how much collateral it has, you can see how much debt it has, you can see the entire history of actions. Well, on this date and time, this person locked up some ETH and then they borrowed this much die and then on this day they paid some back. Oh wow, this is really pretty. Really, really cool. Yeah. It just the, the thing is like in blockchain, we kind of take that for granted that there's these cool things, but Take a step back for a second and think of maker like the maker kind of system as a bank. Uh -huh. Like this amount of transparency does not exist in the traditional banking world. If you went to Bank of America down the street and you're like, "Hey, I'm thinking about taking out a loan, but please let me look at your entire loan book first. I want to see every loan you've extended. I want to know every individual you've extended it to. I want to know the duration of the loan, the interest of the loan, like before I make my decision if it's like." safe for me to take out a loan with you. They, they tell you to get lost, yep. right? Um, it's the amount of transparency that we have in the system. Like right now, it seems very opaque uh, to regulators and you know they're, they're understandably fearful because they don't understand it yet. But once they realize how much more transparent this type of system is than the traditional banking sector, I think they're gonna fall in love with it. Oh, yeah. The most easily regulatable thing they've ever seen. Now that you can always build, like, uh, try to throw this con concept out as much as I possibly can, but you can build centralized services or even non-transparent services on top of transparent services. But you can't do the opposite. Mm -hmm. like, you can go from you can you can you can go from decentralized to centralized. And, and what's nice about that is you still have the basic like like reliability layer underneath that gives you transparency. And rebuilding a fi the financial world on top of this is definitely doable, and in my in my opinion, like uh, like inevitable. But that doesn't hurt the the base layer in a lot of ways. In fact, it emboldens it, it and throws a lot of use cases into it because you have a massive funnel into the base layer. Um, and what you've kind of built, if you're saying like kind of what we came back from yesterday, is you've built a decentralized credit system in a lot of ways. Uh, what has been well like, like that, kind of, that kind of throws me off a little bit because, like, I think, the, like, is this a credit system? I guess you're not like, yes, you're putting up collateral, but you're not really like that's not credit. Like, credit is, hey, I am known to be pretty good, so they're going to give me free money just because of my reputation. 
this is like you're putting out collateral. There's real risk involved in you being a bad actor. It's not like, you know, like, yeah, the, the, with a credit score, like, you be a bad actor, what, what, what happens? They might be able to garnish wages. They might not. And they'll be able to uh, hurt your credit score so you can't do that chronic junk again. But the risk is all on the person giving the money. The money's not being given to you by, by a third party. It's not, like, this is not the same thing as credit. If you... It's closer to Dharma, but I don't even see it acting like Dharma because Dharma is kind of this peer-to-peer -peer system. But peer-to-peer, -peer, like, in fact, that might be a good distinction to make here. Um, the Dharma protocol versus what you guys are doing, it actually seems like they almost work well together rather than being a competing thing, which is what I originally kind of thought. So maybe that would help with that distinction that I'm trying to make here. Well, I mean, we, we have a great relationship with with Dharma and, and all the, the secondary lending protocols, right? Um, actually they I, I just want I know I know you asked a different question but I just want to touch on this real quick um, all of these secondary lending protocols actually help us stabilize die um, because effectively if we offer you know some rate and uh, you know someone else has a more attractive rate right they'll just go over there and borrow die from them instead of borrowing die from us and that actually helps reinforce uh, reinforce the pay, right? So when the thing is when we move rates, they pretty much have to move rates as well. Though it's a it's a symbiotic type of relationship because any die that's being lent out at Dharma, someone is paying you know the whatever our stability fee is uh, you know on that die you know every second. Uh, so you even though it's not that exact individual um, who is who's paying that um, from a macro level, somebody is, and that all actually tends to, to equilibrate it out. Yeah. So that's awesome. You've built literally an ecosystem, a platform that people can play with nicely. And there's really no competitive advantage to doing anything wrong or anything. It just, I don't, I'm not seeing like the more questions I have, the more they just seem like, yeah, why would anybody do that? You know what I mean? It's the best answer that I can give. Um, or, you know, it would just break the system or they would just lose money or it wouldn't, it wouldn't help anything. So I think that's interesting. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, there's always social attacks outside and reasonings beyond, like if somebody wanted to attack Ethereum, the fact that you hold 2% of that would be a pretty major attack if they found some way of like gaming the system to attack that. But I think most people don't. And I don't, I don't really see somebody having that kind of money laying around to do that kind of job. I think a better way um, to maybe... Yeah, there could be problems, but we're we're relatively naive people about it. Why don't we ask the back end guy, like, what's difficult? Like, where where do you see potential issues in in the future? Where do I see potential issues in the future? Oh boy. Um, or like, what's I mean, a, like maybe starting off with like, what's really really hard to get right from an engineering perspective, so that like you have this quality mechanism design, this equilibrium, and how do you know? building it, that's what you're going to get. Yeah, what well, sucks about Maker, man? Sure. So I, I think uh, <laughs> I, I think that a flaw that we have with the current uh, die that is released right now is that the only lever we have to really stabilize the peg on a macro level, um, right, was this our ability to, um, to disincentivize people to create die. Right, by raising the interest rate, right, or incentivizing them to create DAI by lowering the interest rate. 
So that is a lever on uh, dye supply. What we do not have right now is a lever on dye demand. Um, and so uh, the way that we're addressing this in multi-collateral dye is that we're going to add something called the dye savings rate. And it's effectively our, this lever on demand. Um, and so what, what the dye savings rate is, is just like how you can go to you know, your local bank and you can put some dollars in a savings account and earn some interest, it's going to work the same way. So you can lock up your die in a smart contract and per second, it will, it will basically accumulate interest. Um, and so the, where this interest is coming from is it's actually coming from uh, the fees that people are paying for the loans, right? So say, so say right now we have uh, 19 and a half percent interest uh, when someone takes out a loan and eat, that's pretty high, I, I think. Um, well, agree. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. It's, but it's pretty high. But what if you could instead say, well, why don't we like give people 6% interest annually just for holding die, right? Now, now there's going to be an increased demand for holding die. So this equilibrium equation has shifted, right? Because there's now increased demand for holding die. And now the system can actually withstain um, increased demand for leverage as well for, for creating new supply uh, because the demand equation has increased. So we can actually use the die savings rate then to lower the interest rate that we're charging borrowers, right? And so we can bring that 19.5%, say, you know, from, you know, 19.5% interest rate and zero to die holders and bring it down to, say, 10% interest rate on borrowers and 6% to die holders. And so effectively, this die savings rates gets funded from, from that stability fee, right? And so you can, it, it's effectively a win-win for, for everybody, right? I, I mean, MKR holders don't make as much money, uh, but it allows the system to scale more. So even in the long term, MKR holders can, uh, can recruit those costs through scale. But for die holders and for borrowers, for borrowers, they get lower rates and for die holders, right, they get to earn interest, which is great. And I think the impact of that is, is going to be felt, uh, be felt kind of ecosystem wide when people realize what it means that you can earn 6% interest on die or 4% or, you know, whatever it ends up being, because think of all of these wallets right now that don't have a business model. Well, if all they do is just you put their users deposits and lock it up in this interest earning um, account and they can write and they can, you know, take it out at any time right now, wallets have a business model. Uh, think of exchanges that haven't listed die yet. Exchanges are, you know, volume is overall down from where we were at 2017 levels. Exchanges are trying to find more avenues for uh, more revenue. Right. And that's why they're doing this whole IEO thing now, because they've had to diversify and find new areas for revenue. Well, what if all of the die that their users deposit on their system can be earning them, you know, four, five, six percent uh, annually? That's another income source. So now exchanges are incentivized to list die. Um, effectively, any application that is, you know, holding die in some way now has an extra income stream. How do you. Uh... How do you see people adopting this? Do you feel like it's going to be institutions and applications that build on top of this system? Or do you think you think end users are going to like directly interact with this? 
I, I think users will directly interact with it, um, but it has to be in collaboration with the, the ecosystem, um, right? So I don't see the end, the die user in five years from now really interacting with like, you know, the maker front end or anything like that. I see it as like someone built an app in Argentina or something and they're using DAI in their back end. The person probably doesn't even know they're using blockchain, using crypto, using DAI. They're just like, oh, I have money. And they can go and their app, you know, is saying, hey, we're going to give you 3% interest or something like that. And the app is making money because they're pocketing the difference, right? I think that the DAI savings rate kind of incentivizes this whole ecosystem of participants to go out and kind of be uh, be missionaries for for the use of DAI, and uh, and it doesn't have to be, hey, here's this cool thing DAI, use DAI. It can literally be abstracted away to the point where you don't need to know you're using blockchain, you don't know you need to use crypto. One really interesting use case I'm super excited about is kind of tokenized uh, securities. So we're working with a partner called TradeShift, and they're one of the largest trade finance uh, kind of uh, companies in the world. And what we're we're doing a pilot project with them for tokenizing invoices. Um, that's what I was kind of kind of get to. I guess something. Uh, go ahead. I want to know. Yeah, like tokenizing. Like that's basically an NFT. Like, yeah. So totally. Yeah, and it has to have a valuation. It's like how do I how do I take how do I take die out on my crypto kitty? Is basically the same problem. Yeah, so like I want to hear all about this. Go. Okay, so in in the trade finance world, right? So say uh, you have Walmart and you have some small kind of toys manufacturer. Um, it's you know Christmas time is coming up and Walmart wants to make a big order and you know the Christmas toys manufacturer. All right, they have some cash. They manufacture some toys. They ship them to Walmart and Wal they issue Walmart like an invoice, right? And uh, say like, hey. Okay, you know, you owe us $200,000. Walmart doesn't pay that invoice immediately. They, you know, it, they'll usually pay it 90 days from the day that, that it was issued. And this is a problem. This is a problem because uh, supply companies are very cash flow dependent businesses, right? So this toy factory, right, you know, maybe it can't handle any large orders. Uh, for a while because it doesn't have enough capital. Um, so what they end up having to do a lot of the time is end up selling their invoices for, you know, say 75 cents on the dollar, um, you know, sometimes even like 50 cents on the dollar, depending how desperate they are. Um, actually, there's a pretty predatory strategy that Walmart and Amazon sometimes employ where they intentionally don't pay their suppliers uh, because they know their suppliers are going to go bankrupt and won't actually be able to sue them. Or Amazon will be able to uh, to then buy that a uh, supplier in bankruptcy for even cheaper. Um, it's pretty predatory. So um, there's an alternative to this is where you effectively borrow against your invoice. So right, so your invoice right has some kind of credit rating. So Walmart and Amazon are you know very have good credit, so they're good for paying out their invoices. And so banks are willing to extend loans um, using these invoices as collateral. The only problem is that the banks won't deal with you unless you're doing like 10 million, 20 million, 50 million subs um, because you're just not worth it to them. 
So there's a whole, and most, and most like manufacturers and suppliers are much, much smaller than that. So what we think we can do is we can have trade, trade shift are, is the one that already does the trade finance stuff. So they already know what the credit rating is of all of, and you know, risk is of all these different invoices. What they can do is they can tokenize this stuff. They can put it in a CDP. They can draw a die against it and they can convert that die into dollars and they can wire those dollars to that supply company. And what you've effectively done is the supply company doesn't need to know anything about blockchain. They don't need to know anything about tokenization or die or anything. They, they don't even know they're using it. They just know that when they go to trade shift, if they like sign over their invoice, they get dollars wired to their account within 24 hours. Okay. Okay. That, that is how we're going to freaking get amazing. And I'll tell you why I come from a different perspective. One of the main problems when it comes to anything dealing with independent contracting is exactly what you mentioned, just in a different context. So it's not just about suppliers. It's about anybody dealing with any organization which has a 60-day or 90-day or even six-month sort of cycle for paying out your particular contract, type of contract. You are dependent on that cash flow. You genuinely are. Like you, like If you want to be a small contractor today, you have to have at least three months worth of I can live off of this in your pocket right away. Otherwise, you are putting yourself at extreme risk because the likelihood that you're going to get paid within 90 days is slim to none. You're probably not even going to be paid till after that because you have to actually do the work first before the invoice is even considered valid before you'll even get paid. Okay. So like the barrier to entry into doing just independent work and independent labor and independent consulting and independent anything is tremendous, especially for young people, people who come from different economic situations, people coming into the country uh, that is not from a privilege of a country. So people from India to here would have a more difficult time. A lot of these like problems are really easily solved if we just had a way of lend lending against invoices. But as you said, they won't even look at your invoice for lending purposes as collateral unless it is at least probably one to 1.5 million minimum, depending on the bank. Good job. Small, small trade, trade, trade. Yeah. So you've gotten Colin excited. He's gone. If, now. <laughs> if you can, if you can not only, not only if you could take these invoices, if you can attach a credit rating to the invoices, and if you could somehow bundle the invoices together, providing an incentive model for collective bargaining, you have something pretty big there. There that they have something pretty big there. That is a big, big, amazing feature that I've always wanted, and it's only possible because of Maker. I'm I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm also sorry. <laughs> I go on rants too. I apologize. Colin is a ranter. It's okay. We love it. That's it's so it's so scary though, because like I mean, I guess it's not because it's not as scary. Because as we rebuild this financial infrastructure, we keep building on top of it, keep building on top of it, keep building on top of it. We abstract away to the point where the user doesn't even know they're doing things. Um, it's important to realize that the foundation is much more stable and reliable, or at least dependent upon a rational market, than something that is not or built on a house of cards. And so like, I worry a lot that what we're doing in the blockchain industry is rebuilding the financial, like a more efficient financial system, but also the fact that like it may be more obscure, complex, and and because we're building so many layers on top of it, that complexity grows and then it's just the same damn thing, but also worse. Have you have you like 
thought about this type of stuff and how this future grows and we like rebuild the financial industry, what's keeping us from not doing the same damn thing? And why is it going to be better this time? I worry about it all the time. Um, right. You know, uh, I hate to beat the dead horse, but you know, 2008 was, uh, was right. It was the result of dressing up a bunch of crap and dicing yeah. up. And what Colin just said, like if they used to build a market on rebuilding, building these things up, bulking them and selling them, if that's not done correctly, then we, we just do the same damn thing. So, so I, I think you made an interesting point earlier where, um, you know, we, we kind of determined that like, you know, maker is super, super transparent, right? So if we, if, if we build on top of maker, we just have to make sure that the things we're building on top of are just as transparent. And then we can, we can actually say, okay, you know, this, comes from this is connected to this in this way. The, the sooner you, if you build something that's, you know, way too abstract on top of maker and that's not transparent in and of itself, that's where you start to collect risk, right? So the whole point is that you collect risk as soon as something is too abstract. And so what we, all we can do is ensure that the base layer is transparent. Like we, we can't control what anyone builds on top of it, right? And I mean, I would hope that, you know, regulators would recognize uh, risk or, you know, even better that users would, would recognize risk. Uh, but I'm, I, I worry a lot of the time that some app is going to come out that's, that isn't, you know, calculating the risk, right? That isn't very transparent. And, you know, they have some viral growth and their users love them and uh, it's, it's going to end badly. BitConnect, uh, baby. BitConnect to... Exactly. Yeah, big connect too. <laughs> like, yeah, and that's that's that to me is actually an illustration of why these things are the amount of power we're giving people. Like, we're removing the the uh, the curtain and showing that the wizard is not this big floating head, and that these these systems are something you can do and you can't. But the problem is people don't have the wisdom to operate them, and when they're so easily accessed, you can get into situations like like uh, like. Uh, Ponzi schemes, you know, something pyramid schemes, you know. I think the biggest lie that the the bankers were ever able to sell like the world's population on was, hey, this stuff is way too complicated for you to understand. Let us take care of it. Yeah, but I, I, what I worry about is we're building systems that actually are right. Try explaining Bitcoin to the everyday everyday person, and then then think about how how more complex Maker is as opposed to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And then that's just the base layer, right? That's that that that's I mean. It's but that's that's the technology things, but... side. So when 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 he's saying that, what I hear when he says when when Nick says that is that managing your own finances is too complex. Okay. Let us do that for you. So so one one thing though is people don't need to understand the technology, but they do need to understand the principles behind it. The risk. They need to understand the risk. So so for example, maker. Um, yeah, there are you know some risks that are specific to the technology stack, but most of it is do you trust the economic model? And the economic model we have in Maker is not something new. It's actually something very old. Central banks use monetary policy, right? You know, modifying interest rates and 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 the like as a way to you know stabilize and, and curb inflation all the time. This is really just the blockchain representation of that. This is not something new, right? 
when a you know hedge funds use basically insurance kind of derivative products all the time to secure their positions, right? The M MKR like as a insurance mechanism is not something new, right? What we've just done is adapted kind of existing models that work and just put them on chain in a more transparent manner. So that's great and all, and you say it's the same, but at the same time. Imagine getting these financial analysts who are up there as talking heads on Bloomberg, who are up there uh, on CNBC, who are up there on Fox Business, talking about how the market's moving and how things... Imagine them talking about MakerDAO and how MakerDAO is positioning itself and whether or not it's going to raise the interest rates or lower. And they're talking about it like it's some monolithic thing because that's all they know. And they don't understand that there's a there's a mechanism in there that, that that's out of the control of any sort of decision-making process. And they use, and some of them will understand it. They might use the microphone to manipulate the markets in one way or another, swaying the mass opinion and the tragedy of the commons. But either way, the story has still changed because it's not the same as like the Fed is going to change the rate. You know, the the it's it's the it's a matter of it's a matter of who has control of the power, and it's just going to be an interesting world when I see the maker market being up there, spoken right next to the S and P. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that, Will. <laughs> I bet you are. <laughs> All right, we got, a, we got a few minutes left. Um, what else sucks about Maker? What else sucks about Maker? Oh, man. Um, I would say another risk we have is um, the MKR token is not super liquid right now. Um, so I think that's something that we need to work on. So, right, so when new MKR gets diluted to cover bad debt, uh, right? That MKR needs to be sold, right? That's how you, that's how you get the buy. Um, if the markets for buying MKR are very illiquid, uh, then you can see the price depreciate rapidly rather than slowly. So the market cap of, so you kind of see this in crypto, right? Where you have coins that are worth like, say like a billion dollars, but they only do like $20 million of actual volume you know, per right. day. After you filter out wash trading, it's probably like a 10th of that. If you were to dump, you know, $5 million of, you know, a coin onto something that only has a million of real liquidity, right? You're going to depreciate the price extremely fast. You'll see that $1 billion market cap, you know, token collapse to 800 million or, you know, 750 million quite quickly. Um, and, and that's something that, uh, we need to improve about the maker token if it's going to be this robust uh, insurance product. Um, and I think the solution to that is really to just publish more types of academic papers detailing how um, the maker system works. Because modeling the uh, value that the maker token should have is, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's pretty it's pretty intuitive right so every die that's outstanding has some kind of uh, fee that it's uh, returning based off whatever collateral it was created with so right so that's uh, that's money coming in okay so you know companies are valued based off like profit to earnings right um you know how much uh, how much money are they bringing in well you know mkr is bringing in this amount of cash this year and you know the dye supply is growing, you know, seemingly at some rate x or on some kind of function x, 
And so we can predict what, you know, the cash flows will be three years from now, five years from now. You know, we can predict like, oh, well, we're taking this much risk um, in terms of something bad happening and uh, us having bad debt and needing to have some dilution. Okay, so we need to have some factor for MKR has this probability of getting diluted. But what you find is that you quickly, very quickly arrive at, you know, a num at a number of what MKR should be valued at. And as soon as you have that kind of uh, clarity in the market of what an MKR should be worth given the state of the system and given kind of the where the system is trending on going, there should be a lot more buyers and sellers who are willing to sell slightly above that price and buy slightly below that price. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the lack of modeling and, uh, and data for people to look at uh, definitely keeps that, that velocity down, right? Uh, people using the token and stuff like that. Yeah, we're, we're, we're working on that. Other people are working on that. And that's just, that's also a growing field, which is dependent upon the actual system being in place and working, right? You can't build models without data in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, or we can't validate models without data. So rather than close on, you know, something that uh, a question of like, yeah, what, what needs to be fixed? What is, what is your favorite thing that you've seen happen in the maker ecosystem? that just blew your mind or just like was, you know, the emergence that you didn't expect or that you were just super excited that you actually saw realized? What was what was your favorite moment? My favorite moment was when we launched Die in December of 2017, and it actually worked. December <laughs> <laughs> 2017, you know, ETH is at like $800. A month later, it rallies to like, you know, $1,400. And then you have a year of just crashing, 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 crashing bear market. Um, it was really the worst possible time you could launch a, a stable to token like Dai that you know was dependent on Ether to back its value, right? And Ether was dropping, 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 dropping. And in that entire time, and even up to today, we have never ever had an underwater loan, not once. And that is that is because in our parameters you know, on how we you know that minimum collateralization ratio of ETH, like yeah, sure, each ETH drops twenty percent some days, but it doesn't drop fifty percent in an hour, or it's not very likely to drop fifty percent in one hour. And so that's what keeps the system solvent, and that's kind of what gives me so much confidence. I think that's so, a quality um, testament to the to the yeah. dynamics of the system, right? Like how 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 quickly. You're able to move back to equilibrium depending upon the price changes of various things. Fourteen hundred dollars down to eighty dollars. Yeah, that's pretty so, impressive. Like, I mean, uh, would that only improve when you add more assets to the system? Uh, so, if you're backing Bitcoin, is that like basically hedging your bet off of Ethereum? Is that going to improve the robustness of the system, or do you see that? Of course, the more, so the more assets you bring in, the more stable the stablecoin becomes. Yes, mm, I'm going to challenge that one. If, well, if, I mean, if Ethereum, if Ethereum flash crashes, okay, you at least have a reference price over here on other on other other coins to know that that's something something's up with Ethereum and it's not too big of a deal. You can then suddenly implement measures like the flash crash happened only on Ethereum, and that was a pretty impressive flash crash. I mean, it dropped down to what eight cents from like what was it at the time, like three hundred? And, and so, the thing, that that didn't affect us. And you want to know why? You, oh, you were open for that. That's right. Yeah, we we. 
we pull our like Oracle prices from a bunch of different exchanges. Um, and so each or each Oracle itself, right, is pulling from say like five exchanges and it takes the, the volume weighted average price and it knows to filter out outliers when it's just one exchange that just goes tits up. Um, so we, we actually weren't affected by the flash crash at all. Holy, so yeah. I don't know. So why would you say you would argue against it, Corey? Because uh, I've had a lot of advanced courses in reaction dynamics. Uh, and this is probably something that models very, very well to that. And it's a subtle science. And there could be some kind of like, it's, it's like as, as you increase the collateral, it becomes a larger and larger multivariate problem. As with any multivariate problem, you have exponential increase of complexity as you increase the number of variables. And optimization of those types of problems gets incredibly complex and sometimes non-trivial. So, like, like in terms of like the dynamics and what can what can pull that system out of equilibrium. Uh, so, I think that'd be that'd be kind of like a, a, a area of research that I would love to see, because the majority of modeling we do in token economics is usually uh, uh, ways for firms to do like to to make appropriate decisions on like collateral. Like where 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 they're where they're putting their money, basically making good quality buys decisions, things like that. Um, but modeling these things, uh, especially when things have multiple utilities, uh, with more complex theories that may be worthwhile, like ecology theory or reaction dynamics theory, may be more appropriate. I'd be kind of curious to see like how those play out. I, and I'm interested too. I think I think some of the things you brought up actually bring to mind other questions, like are the fundamental assumptions we're making on how supply and demand actually works on a system like this sound in the long term? For the majority of the time, they use like that old, that old model, like, in, like was it PQ equals uh, MV, right? And then uh, what the majority of the problems are modeling velocity. And so you have these like really odd ways that don't quite fit on modeling these types of like old financial models that then maybe make decent approximations, but it may be out of the context because the financial model just doesn't quite capture the complexity of, of the token itself, right? Because at the end, like cryptocurrencies are more general. They transcend the idea of old financial, old, old financial tools. And when you use the tooling of the older transcended thing, they're never going to capture everything. And that complexity may mean drastic consequences of like the thing in practice. And until we come up with better models or try different things, then uh, I'm not, I'm not too sure of like, how accurate these things are, but that's that's part of the field, and it's a very very small budding field. You need a lot of work and a lot of research to apply to these things, and it's just a small amount of people doing it. And you know, I feel like it's also one of those things that sometimes you won't know until the bad shit happens. Uh, but I mean, so far you've su sustained through a beetle, uh, brutal beating, beetle brooding, <laughs> beetle brooding. <laughs> You, you, you sustained through a beetle brooding, um, a brutal beating. And, uh, you know, it's been a rough year for markets and they're now on the upswing and you're watching the other side of it. So, uh, you know, I mean, that gives nothing but confidence to what you're building. Um, I, I just, that's all I got to say is your contracts held, you know, your contracts held, your system held through a rough time. Um, I'm sure people are trying to come at you all the time. I guarantee, I guarantee there's people who want to figure out how to break you just for fun. <laughs> not even because they have a vendetta, just because that's well, what you they got 2% of either locked up. They're definitely yeah. not doing it for fun. Well, they might be doing it for fun. Maybe, you know, like, like lock, like, let's say that you could just wind up finding a way to just lock up that money. Like that would just be because they're dicks. 
It's not, it's like, you know, like I, I don't see any, maybe not, maybe they want to attack ether itself, but I don't know. The point is that people are coming at you. You're, you're standing up to the bullets and uh, it's, it's panning out so far and uh, you're building quite a hell of an ecosystem around this. And I, I just very impressed with what I'm hearing here. So yeah, I came in as a pure skeptic intentionally uh, and I came out um, as a person who is uh, 75% there because <laughs> I always gotta leave that, that, that little, that little bit extra because I got more to learn. And there's only so much you can learn in two hours of talking. So, uh, but yeah, no, I think this is really impressive stuff. Like this is extremely impressive. So, cool. Well, yeah. I'm glad I'm glad we got you 75 percent of the way there. <laughs> I gotta leave that room, man. All right, let's go 90. I'll go the full 90, whatever. But like, I, like, I can't. I gotta also kind of like leave myself. Like, you gotta leave yourself space for like. Uh, this, is, this is not an endorsement. It's just me trying to figure out what's going on here based off what you said and what I've been reading and what what I've been looking at. Um, it's it seems cool and reasonable and like it, it it makes sense when you explain it to me the way you explained it to me because before coming into this it didn't quite and then it's just like there's a lot of stuff going on here and it's like i can't grok all this and this makes a lot makes it a lot better the the problem is that there's no clear entry point where you start and then you go yeah. from b to c to d it's all it's a podcast. this thing and it's connected to this thing and this other thing, but we can't talk about the other thing yet. Let's talk about this first. And we just tried. Not, we just tried to do it over the past two hours. It's and... not until you have the whole picture that you see how things are interconnected. And that's why Corey was like, dude, if you if you haven't listened to the previous episode, you gotta listen to it before you do this. Um, because I feel like, you know, just that 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 explanation of the it just helped. Um so I yeah. I mean, this is your point of entry. How's that? Push us yeah, really hard. Push us Tell everyone hard. they should listen to these two episodes before they even talk to y'all, and uh, we'll, we'll 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 make it a, make it a deal. In, in terms of like uh, getting Colin the rest of the ten percent, where do people go to find out more and to learn the things that they maybe quite didn't get the first time uh, when they listen to this, or they need more clarity on certain things? Like, where's the conversation? Where do they learn more? Where do they find you? So, I mean, uh, if you go to chat.makerdow.com, uh, we are very, very active on our chat. We have a super, super active community. Um, you know, all of us are posting in the public channels like all day, every day. Uh, so you can ask all your questions there. Um, we also have um, a repo on GitHub in the MakerDAO repo called awesome-makerdow. And, and it's pretty awesome. It is very awesome. It is a list of like every single thing having to do with Maker, with how it works, with kind of guides, with specs, with FAQs. It has links to every AMA, every podcast we've ever done. It has videos. It has links to every platform that trades die, that uses die. Um, it has a ton of different stuff. Um, and it's just growing day by day by day by day. Awesome. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate you taking the extra hour to, to, to expand this out because it's just there's just so much here. And uh, I feel a lot better about my understanding of how things work. And I also feel about, a lot about better, like pointing people in the right direction uh, when they have questions for me. Uh, thanks a lot. Yep, super. Thanks. Awesome. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. This was uh, This was super cool.